Bibles, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul is wrapping up his second and final letter to the Corinthian church. There's really not much left to go. We're going to be probably taking longer than uh, maybe um, others because, of course, I try to to get, dig deep into the passages, not necessarily covering a chapter every Sunday, but there's only 13 chapters, and we're in chapter 10. And we're not going to complete chapter 10 today. I do just want to look at the first half of chapter 10. So let's go ahead and do that now, looking to chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You know what is a big red flag for me when I meet a spiritual leader of any type, a pastor, whatever they call themselves. Some call themselves bishops, some call themselves pastors, some call themselves elders. I honestly could care less about the title that is attached to that spiritual leader. By the way, all those titles are biblical. Uh, you may feel like bishop is an unbiblical title to use. No, it's actually in the, in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and elder is in the Bible, and, and pastor or shepherd is in the Bible. So these are in the Bible, and uh, there's nothing wrong with those titles. My concern isn't the titles they choose to use. My concern is the attitude behind the titles. Look, I, I recognize that there are some really great speakers out there. There's some really great men and women of God who just know God's word very deeply, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the people that God has placed on this earth that know truth and know how to communicate truth very, very well. But just because you know truth doesn't mean I want you to be the one mentoring me through it. Just because you understand the word of God doesn't mean I want you to be the one to influence my life or my family's life. And I'll tell you, for me, what is the probably first thing that I automatically recognize about people that I am looking as influencers looking at either as influencers in this church, influencers in our school, influencers in my life, because I have people in my life that influence me, as we all probably do, I would imagine. And, and so the very first thing that I am looking at is, are you allowing pride to control you? Look, the truth is we've all got it, right? It's, it's all in our lives. We're human. The human conditional condition is one of pride. Pride was the first sin. Satan, Lucifer, the first time he sinned, he said, I will lift myself up above God. That's pride. So the first sin was pride, and pride has been with us ever since and will be with us, not until the second coming of Christ, because the thousand years that he reigns on earth, pride will still be in the hearts of man. It will not be until he destroys heaven and earth and starts all over, and we go into the eternal state with Christ. That is when pride will be eliminated forever, at least in the presence of God. But until then... Pride is with us. And until then, some of us are fighting pride and some of us are losing to pride because that's pretty much the only two boats you're going to be in, right? Either pride's in your life and you are setting yourself up for success by pushing against it, by fighting against it with the spiritual weapons God has given us, or you've just given up and pride has overtaken you. And if pride is overtaking you, then you are on a path to destruction. God's word is very clear in multiple cases, in multiple texts, that pride only always takes you to destruction. Sometimes that word is actually referred to uh, as death, Re you know, meaning destruction, but the word death is used to just show you how deep this destruction is. Pride only takes you towards death, only takes you towards destruction. So Christian, are you on the path to destruction? If you are, as a pastor, I'm not going to let you influence the people in this church if that's the path you're taking. Oh, but Russ, I know the word of God. I know truth. Well, great, but you're going to know truth on the way to death. 
You're going to know truth on the way to destruction. That's probably worse. (laughs) You are setting not only yourself up for failure, but others who say, oh, he knows truth. She knows truth. Let's follow them. Now you're taking them to the path of destruction with you. That's worse. I would almost rather you didn't know truth, didn't speak truth, didn't teach truth, because then maybe you'd be on your own and no one would be following you in that path of destruction. I am so grateful for the heart of the Apostle Paul. Now, I, I'm, pretty concerned, I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul also struggled with pride based off of some of the other things that he said. But like, the, like many men and women today, the Apostle Paul understood something about pride. You constantly remind yourself of who you are in Christ and who is Christ is to you, and that is one of the best and most effective tools to fight against pride. Who is Christ? Well, verse 1 of chapter 10, Christ is meek and gentle, the opposite of pride. Now, someone once asked me, in fact, recently this was asked, it's been asked many times, well, if, if pride is wrong, is it okay for us to be proud to be Americans, proud to be Christians? And I said, look, the, the word is similar, but the, when you talk about being proud of something, that means you're not ashamed of it. That's a good thing. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm proud of the gospel of Christ. So to be proud to be an American would be, say, I'm not ashamed to call myself an American citizen. That's great. To be proud to be a Christian is saying, I'm not ashamed to be a Christian. I would hope that's the case, right? To be proud uh, to follow God would say, I'm not ashamed of who God is, what he claims in his word, and I'm not ashamed to follow his word. That's great. To be prideful is now to lift yourself up like Satan and say, I am better than God. I am better than you. I am better than someone else. That's prideful, not proud or not ashamed. They're two different things. And so Jesus Christ... Did he lift himself above others? No. He actually came to earth and brought himself lower. He abased himself. God, who is already lifted above others, doesn't need to lift himself. He's already, God never created uh, himself. God's always existed and always existed above his creation. God chose to step down from his throne and come to where we're at, and then even on earth, as if that wasn't bad enough, as if that wasn't enough, where Christ went from here to here. On earth, Christ became a servant among mankind on earth, even more so abasing himself. Don't ever tell me Christ is prideful. He's the opposite of it. God the Father lifts up Christ. God the Holy Spirit points to Christ. But Christ did not lift himself up. Christ lowered himself. When I'm looking for influencers, I'm looking for people who understand that important truth. One of, in my opinion, the most important truths of practical daily living, and that of lowering yourself. So the Apostle Paul says, I implore you, I request of you, I request of you as Christ was meek and gentle, who in presence am base among you. He says, I also seek to do the same. And base among you makes me, I have an idea of when I'm with you, I want to be your servant. I don't want to lord over you. I don't want to boss you around. I want to be there to help you, not to hinder you. I want to be there to serve you, not to, not to control you, right? I want, to, I want to be base among you so that you can gain the most from me and I can give you the most. That, but being absent and bold towards you. Okay, so the Apostle Paul in this verse is basically saying, it may seem like in my letters as I'm writing to you that I'm very overbearing, that I'm very controlling, that I'm very harsh and hard in the truths that I'm giving you. He says, I get that that's what it seems like, but remember how I am when I'm with you. He said, I'm with you, I'm your servant. And do not let the boldness, do not allow the boldness of my letters um, cause you to forget 
the, the servant's heart that I have when I'm with you. And that's what he's trying to remind them of. Why? Why is the Apostle Paul even stating this? You can read chapter 10, at least half of it with me this morning as we go through it. Read the rest on your own later. You're going to find the Apostle Paul is struggling from afar with people who are in the church causing chaos. These people in the church are talking bad about Paul. They are belittling Paul. They're saying, don't listen to Paul. You can't believe him. You can't trust him. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's tricking you. Listen to us. Don't listen to him. Now, it's pretty hard to convince someone you are right and someone else is wrong when you're all in the same room together. It's so much harder when you're not even in the room with them. You're somewhere else writing a letter about someone who's with that other person face-to-face telling them how wrong you are. That's the position the Apostle Paul is in. And he's saying these spiritual letters, uh, leaders, these prideful men and probably women, they are turning you away from God. Remember my heart. Remember my heart reflects the heart of Christ. Theirs doesn't. Prideful men, prideful women. And so the title of this morning's message is Identity in Christ. Identity in Christ. Because the Apostle Paul was essentially in chapter 10 trying to remind the Corinthian believers I am in Christ, you are in Christ, we are all in Christ, and these people are lying to you. They're claiming I'm not saved. They're claiming I'm not a true apostle. They're claiming that I don't follow Christ. No, my identity is in Christ. And so what I tell you comes from Christ. Now, obviously, sitting there, very few of you have positions of what might be referred to as full-time ministry spiritual leadership. We do have some some Christian school teachers and some of you that they're involved in various ways that those that would look at you and say, oh, that's a spiritual leader. But I got to tell you, if you are a full-time Christian servant or not, your identity needs to be in Christ. And you shouldn't have to convince people of who you are because of who you are. Convince people of who you are because of who you are in him. You must include him because on our own, what really are we? And what's the point of that conversation if we're just going to argue about who's better than who outside of Christ? I'm not interested in having that debate. But I will all day talk to you about Christ and who I am in Christ. Let's have that conversation. And so I see three points this morning. A bold message, a spiritual weapon, and a powerful presence. So let's start with a bold message, verses 1 and 2. We read the first verse. Let's go on to verse 2. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, (laughs) which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He said, look, some people, I can't really be their servant. I've got to come across as more authoritative because if I serve them, I'll just enable them. I'll allow them to walk over me. I'll allow them to control me, and they will take advantage of my servant's heart. And he says, as much as I would love To serve everyone, I can't. Some people don't need a servant. They need a corrections officer. Some people need someone telling them what to do, where to go, who to be. Because if you just serve them, they will continue down their own path of destruction. Let me give you an example. It's very uh, dangerous to treat a child as if you are that child's servant. Your child specifically. Now, the truth is you are your child's servant. You're cleaning up after him. You're feeding him. You're, you're, you're doing so much for them. You are serving your family. But if your child gets that in their head and they say, mom and dad is my servant, you probably lost uh, a lot more authority in that family than is healthy for the child. You know what's great, though, that someday that child will grow up 
And someday that child's eyes will be open to, wow, my mom served me like the last 18 years of my life. Wow, my mom has been a servant for like the last 25 years. And now you know it's great moms and dads when your child's an adult. Now you can actually serve them like, you know, full-blown, out in the open. There's no need to be any kind of authority figure. Truly be the servant you've always been, and you will just endear the heart of your child to you. And they will say, you've always been a servant. Now I see it. And now it will not hinder your relationship with your adult child. It will bring them back to you. But if you treat your 8-year-old or 9-year-old as if you are their servant, and if they treat you like you're their servant... That, you're in for some rough rides with your children, right? So the Apostle Paul, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'd rather serve everyone, but there are some Christians where it's not to their benefit. So I have to come across bold, not as a servant, not base, but as a, a, an authority in the church that God has given me. I've got to come across that way to keep them from destroying themselves and others. And so that's what he's saying here in verses 1 and 2. I see a bold message, though. Regardless of Paul's presence, regardless of whether he was bold or a servant, the message he preached was always bold. And so letter A, the the overwhelming message of the gospel does not need to be paired with an overwhelming personality. It's not necessary. You know, um, it's pretty easy to pick out people who are... I think in, in a few things. One, obviously prideful, as I stated already. But I think another one, they're very, they lack confidence because in every, every situation they're in, they want to control. They can't be in a situation, they can't be in a conversation where they let go of control. You know what I find about that person? A few things. First of all, they might be just a narcissist. But outside of that, it's very likely they're prideful and also very likely they lack self-confidence because someone who lacks self-confidence needs to be in control because they're not confident enough for someone else to be in control and for them to kind of allow that control to happen. And it's unfortunate how many leaders in the secular world, business and otherwise, nonprofits, and in the Christian spiritual world where leaders lack confidence. The confidence to let go and let someone else have a shot. To let go and say, you know what? My status in this company is not affected by your success. I'm rooting for you. I wish you the best. I have confidence in my abilities and who I am and what I bring to the table that if you end up being better than me, it doesn't matter. I'm not going anywhere. We just now got someone else that can help. That's great. That's what I want. But how many churches, how many pastors are concerned anytime a man or a woman steps up and seems to be as spiritual as the pastor? That threatens them. That shows me pride and a lack of confidence and, again, probably narcissism. Christians, it is time for us to be like Christ and recognize the boldness of the gospel, the overwhelming power of the gospel does not need to be paired with an overwhelming personality. I'm not saying that an overwhelming personality is wrong. Sometimes God just created people where their personality is strong, loud, and bold, right? Well, then it's it's the job of those created like that to maybe uh, tone it down a little bit and not let their personality distract from the power of the gospel. Because here's what I think a lot of churches, a lot of Christians are looking for. They're saying, wow, he's a great preacher. Why? He's just so bold in his preaching. He's so bold in his personality. You know what I heard? I heard a lot about the preacher. Um, I was actually asking more about the, the, the gospel, the message. You know, so many Christians, they are overwhelmed. They're in shock and awe by, by, the, by the, the power behind the personality of the speakers. And in my opinion, all that does is distract from what really matters, the truth of the message. In fact, those with bold personalities need to try harder to step back 
back in the shadows and let the truth, let Christ be in the light where he belongs. And those with more timid personalities need to make sure that they don't allow their timidness to distract from the boldness of the gospel. Because the gospel is bold. The gospel is powerful. But listen to this. You need to know the truth. Christ was meek. Christ was humble. Christ was lowly. He made himself a servant because for Christ, he knew it was the truth that was going to save people, not the overpowering of his personality, even God himself. God didn't want to force people into salvation through his personality. He wanted to guide them through the power of the gospel, through the power of the truth. We need to know the truth, and we need to help others know the truth. Stop trying to get them to know you better and get them to know Christ better and Christ through you. I see letter B. We're going to be looking at verse number one and two again, letter B. The manner in which truth is presented may depend on the decisions of those hearing it. Know your audience. We saw in verses one and two where the apostle Paul says, hey, I want to be base among you. Normally I am, but sometimes I can't be. Sometimes, especially who's present with you when I show up, I have to be bold rather than a servant. Know your audience. As I stated earlier, you know, treating children like you're their servant, that's no good to anyone. Know who you're talking to, know what they need, and then give them what they need. And sometimes what they need isn't what you want to give. Sometimes what they need isn't what you want to be. I was a youth pastor from the age of 20, I think, two-ish, around there. And I, that, I loved that time in my life because, you know what, what the teenagers need, needed was what I was naturally. They needed someone who was energetic and uh, someone who loved playing games, someone who was loud and goofy and, and could take, you know, uh, joking around with teens and give it right back to them. And that was me. I didn't have to try at that. That, that came easily and naturally to me. You know what was really hard? When I moved here 10 years ago, and I, I was hired here to be the youth pastor, assistant and youth pastor, and to teach in a school, you know, Bible class and maybe a PE, something like that. That's what I was hired to do. Within six months, the principal at that time quit, and the school had no principal. Actually, before that, the English teacher passed away, and they had no English teacher, so I stepped in as a full-time English teacher. That was hard because controlling a class and being a teacher all day, six to seven periods, is much different than being a youth pastor. And then a few months after being an English teacher, the principal stepped down, and the school needed a principal. And I stepped in and said, I'll do it for as long as I need to till we get someone else. Ten years later, we are now currently, you know, setting that up to happen. But for ten years, it was a principal. Now, that was hard. That was hard because what the school needed from a principal was not what the youth needed from a youth pastor. Two completely different needs. The kind of person I had to be. The, the things that I should and should not have said, even down to how I dressed, I literally stopped, started dressing differently. As a youth pastor, I didn't dress like a teenager, but I dressed like a youth pastor. You can envision that in your head, however that might look. As a principal, as a principal, I realized I can't be going in meetings with parents and saying, I need to talk to you about your child who's getting a detention or a suspension dressed like a youth pastor. They're going to say, who is this kid? And who are you to tell me what's going on? So I immediately started dressing closer to what you see today. That was hard. I didn't enjoy that. The hardest thing was as a youth pastor, I was the principal and a youth pastor for about two to three years, which was not healthy for anyone. You know why? Because I wanted to be the youth pastor to our teenagers. 
The problem was if I was a youth pastor as a principal, I would have destroyed this school. We would not be in existence today. If I was a principal to the youth group, there would be no youth group. I had to go from one role to the next, back and forth, and that was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my ministry, being a youth pastor Wednesday night and Sunday morning and being a principal all other five days of the week. It wasn't just hard for me, though. You know who else was hard for? Those teens. It confused them. (laughs) They said, well, then who are you really, Pastor Russ? Are you the principal or the youth pastor? Like, which one's the real you? And, you know, sometimes even I wondered. Sometimes I wonder which one was the real me. I was the youth pastor, but I was becoming the principal. There came a day in 2016 where I realized I was no longer the youth pastor. I had to be who God had been bringing me to be, who people needed, because there's no end of youth pastors out there. There is a limited amount of people who are willing to be in positions that I'm in. And I thought someone else can do what I'm doing as a youth pastor. Very few can do what I'm doing as a principal. So I raised my hand and said, God, I will continue down this path. As much as I loved being a youth pastor, as much as I would have done it a lot longer, I said, God, I'm ready. I'm ready, and I know my calling of that time is done. You called me into this, and now this is who I am, and God has brought us youth pastors to replace that need. The point is there are people who need different things. Their ages, their experiences, their knowledge, some need a principle. Some need a youth pastor. And the Apostle Paul wanted to be the youth pastor to the Corinthian church. He says, I just want to go there and serve you and love you and be your friend and give you whatever you need. I want to be that to you. The Apostle Paul says, but if for your good, I will be the principal if necessary. And I will be bold, not just in the message, because the message is always bold. But I will be bold in my actions to you if you require it. Let's talk about parenting real quick because this is where the ball has dropped a lot. Parents, you're in a similar situation to me, not on a high as a level, but a similar situation where you're playing and rolling around on the floor with the kids and wrestling and throwing the ball and smiling and having a great time, and then you're the authoritative disciplinarian. And your kids may be confused, who is mom, who is dad? And you get confused, who am I? And you wonder, is this really healthy for my kids to be both? Look, it's a little different when you're family, and yes, they do need both. And you've got to recognize your audience, who you're speaking to, what their needs are, and give them what they need. To hear the truth clearly, not being distracted by your overbearing personality. Letter C. Some will attack the gospel by attacking you. No your enemy. Verse 2, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with you that confidence. He's saying I'm imploring, I'm begging that you do not require me to be bold, overbearing when I arrive. Why? Wherewith I think to be bold against some because some in your audience, some in the congregation are requiring that of me. Basically, what's going on is going to need more than just a servant when I arrive. Which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. They are accusing me of living in sin. They are accusing me of living in lies and deception and lying to you. They are accusing me of being a false prophet, a false apostle. They're accusing me, the apostle Paul says, and I'm not going to show up and serve them in those accusations. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to give truth. But he's saying, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this letter 
will do that for me so that I don't have to do it myself when I arrive. I'm hoping that what I say in this letter will convince you of the truth so when I arrive, I can be the servant that I want to be to you. Know your enemy, though, because some will attack the gospel. They'll do so by bringing you down. Look, if you are giving the truth, then the greatest method over and over again is not to attack the truth, but to attract the character of the truth giver. It's done in court cases all the time. When a witness is brought forth to state what they have seen, the the other side's immediate goal is to discredit the witness. Because if they can discredit the witness, then the jurors pretty much have to eliminate, forget, or not consider what the witness said. It is a lot easier to discredit a witness than it is to discredit the truth, especially if it is true, correct? The world is trying to discredit truth, but they're trying a whole lot harder to discredit you. The world wants to eliminate truth, but God will not let that happen. So you know what they're going to do instead? Eliminate you. People who are trying to convince your children to follow a different path, I guarantee you, will attack you as a parent personally in some way. It's going to happen. If your child is in a situation where people hate truth and hate God's word, then they are going to have to attack you, the witness of the truth, to your child. Don't make it easy for them. Because too many Christians, it's not even, not even worth the effort of the world to attack as we attack ourselves. The world doesn't need to point out our faults. We discredit ourselves by the way we live our lives by how we treat others. The world looks at us and says, are you kidding? Do we even need to bring this witness to the stand? Everyone can see this witness is crazy. I don't even need to say anything about that witness. The kids see that their parents are crazy. Parents, adults, Christians, stop being crazy. Show the world what a true witness of Christ is like and make the world, make the world fight the truth. Stop making it easy for them and letting them discredit truth by discrediting you. Our choices of immorality, our choices of, 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 of a lack of self-control, our choices of unkindness and anger and bitterness, our choices destroy ourselves and our own witness. Do not bring shame on the gospel of Christ. Do not bring shame on God and his church. Do not bring discredit to the truth you claim to follow. The Apostle Paul stood up for truth. The Apostle Paul lived truth, and he still had people trying to discredit him. So a bold message. Whether the messenger is bold or not, whether the messenger needs to be bold or not, the message itself is always bold, is always uh, exactly what people need to hear. Let's go to number two, a spiritual weapon. Verse three, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. What does that mean? He says, even though I'm in a physical body, I'm not fighting with physical weapons. That's what he's saying. He's saying, they're claiming that I'm living in the flesh, that I'm living in sin. And he said, you know what, look, that's a victory I've already got. And I didn't get the victory through the flesh. I got it with a spiritual weapon. That's how I won. That's how I overcame. Verse four, how that he was caught up. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Let's, let's go here. Verse 10, uh, verse Four and chapter 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, 
casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. There's that pride again. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You know what the greatest revenge of sin is? Righteousness. You know what the greatest uh, revenge of rebellion is? Service, humility. The greatest revenge of disobedience is obedience. Find revenge of your past bad choices by making better choices going forward. Have revenge on your past regrets by eliminating regrets going forward. Have revenge on your own past rebellion by serving humbly going forward. That's your revenge. And so letter A. Spiritual victory is not attained through physical efforts. How many churches have you been to where it seems that the way to be a good Christian is to look like a good Christian? How many Christians have you known where it seems that a good Christian is defined by what they wear, what they do, what they don't do, what they don't wear, where they go, where they don't go, and how often they go there or don't go there? That is the identity of of a Christian. It's the physical. It's the dress code. It's the hair standards. It's the makeup standards. It's the attendance record at your church. All physical things. And the Christians strongly believe this is what defines me as a believer. No, Christ is what defines you as a believer. Christ is your identity, not your church membership. Christ is your identity, not your clothes. Christ is your identity, not your hair, not your makeup, not your earrings. Christ is your identity. And yet a lot of believers don't understand this truth. We just read. The Apostle Paul says, you want to bring down the addictions and the sin in your life? You're not going to do it through physical means. It's going to be done by lowering yourself, casting down those imaginations, that pride of saying, I'm better than, bringing that down, and when you humble yourself and place Christ where he belongs in your life, sin is overpowered. And guess who did it? Not you, because you brought yourself down. The one you brought up overpowers sin, Christ. That's how sin is defeated, Christian. It's as simple as that. Here you are trying to defeat your addictions, trying to attack your sin, trying to get rid of the, the, the thoughts that keep uh, coming to your mind and you keep giving into by going to church more, by dressing different, by doing different, by being different. All that makes you is a hypocrite now. You want true success? Recognize you're lost on your own. You've got nothing. Lower yourself. Bring down those imaginations that... Elevate themselves, bring them down, and say, I am nothing on my own. I am nothing without Christ. I'm going to put Christ where he belongs in my life. I'm going to make him first. And now Christ, as first in your life, will do all the heavy lifting. Christ will not do all of it for you. He will assist you, but Christ will be assisting you. You will not be on your own. And you will find victory. That's what he's saying here. It's not attained through physical efforts. These people attacking the Apostle Paul, I have no doubt. They would say, look, look at the Apostle Paul. Look how he dresses. Look how he dresses. I mean, come on. 
Who do you think is more of the Christian? The Apostle Paul says he loves you, but we're here every Saturday, every Sunday, every Monday, every Tuesday. You know, every time there's a Bible study, we're here. The doors are open. We're here. The Apostle Paul, you know, he's hit and miss. He's got other places he's going. He's not as committed to this church as we are. Our commitment, the way we dress, the way we act, we're the real deal. The Apostle Paul says the real deal isn't discovered physically. The real deal is only discovered through spiritual ways. Letter B, when God wins, men win. When God wins, we win. Looking again at verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Having all and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience with obedience. Look, when you place God on the throne of your life, and when you recognize God is the power, God is God, and you are not. When you say God is the gold medalist I didn't even place, when you say God wins, you win. Why? Because God takes you with him. You didn't win because of what you did. You win because of what he did, and he includes you in his victory. When you seek to win outside of God, you only always lose. Sometimes, um, so I play, I've been playing video games since I was like five. I mean, I grew up with the, you know, standard regular Nintendo. Don't play as much as I used to, of course, but I still play occasionally. And I'll play some games and my daughters will look at it and say, oh, I can play that. When they were young, I would give them a controller with no batteries, and they would sit next to me, and they would, you know, click on the batteries. Abby and Kinsey literally thought they were playing, and they would be, you know, I'd be doing Mario Kart or whatever, and they're doing this, thinking they're playing. And, and it got to the point where they, I was winning a lot, and they thought they were winning only because they sat next to me and were playing with the broken, dead controller. When, it, when they finally said, Dad, I really want to play, they got enough, old enough to realize I'm not actually playing. I gave them a controller, and, they're, you know, they're, Mar- they're running into the wall. They're going backwards. They're going the wrong way on the track. You know, that's how it is in the Christian life. When God brings so many victories into your life, and you're sitting next to him, and you're just enjoying the victories God brings in your life, at some point you say, oh, I can do that. And God says, really? Okay. <laughs> Let's see how you do. <laughs> and you're going backwards. You're running into walls. It's not working out the way you thought. Give the controller back to God and say, you know what? It was better when you had the controller. Yeah. Yeah, it was better. Give it back to God. Let God have the victories for you. And just stay close to the victor. The great thing about a team is basketball, soccer, football, the whole team wins even when maybe five, if it's basketball, or, you know, 10, 11, 12, other other sports. They're the ones that put forth the most effort. Everyone at the end of the game is cheering. Everyone's giving high fives when they win. Everyone at the picture holds up their finger, we're number one, even those who barely played. Because when your team wins, you win. When God wins, we win. Stop trying to run from God and, stop, and start putting God where he belongs and let him win. Letter C. Outward obedience is a result of inner submission. So we saw here where in verse number 7, it says that uh, as he is Christ, even so are we Christ's. Verse, um, I'm sorry, you know, I'm going to back up here. Let's go to verse number 6. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience where your obedience is fulfilled. You know, 
these, uh, these people in the Corinthian church, I'm pretty convinced, as I stated, I think that they were constantly pointing at the physical, saying, look at us, look at us, look how we look. This is how a Christian looks. And Paul says, no, no, look to Christ, and do I reflect Christ? That's what you need to look for, not the physical appearance. So many Christians are so concerned with outward appearance. Outward appearance is just a facade and easily faked. If outward appearance is how you found your identity in Christ, then anyone can do it, even the unsaved. And in a lot of churches, that's exactly how it is. The unsaved, the undiscipled, those who don't even love God are faking it because the bar has been set so low, the standard is so low, if you're wearing a church outfit and look like a Christian, we'll accept you as one. That's a low bar. That is not our identity in Christ. But obedience. You want obedience to Christ? You want to do what's right? You want your life to reflect righteousness? It's not in doing. It's in becoming. Become submissive. Become a servant of God. Verse 6. Having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. But how do we do that? Verse 5. Again, casting down those imaginations. Humility. Do not obey to find your identity in Christ. Find Christ, serve Christ, and you will obey him. Find Christ, serve Christ, and you will find your identity in him, and everything else will fall in place naturally. Point number three, powerful presence, verse seven. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again. That as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Letter A, a Christian is not identified through appearance. I just said that, and here we are in verse number 7 saying the same thing. The Apostle Paul says, you guys claim to be Christians by how you look. I claim to be Christian because of who I am in Christ, who Christ is and what he's done for me and my identification with him. The Apostle Paul doesn't outrightly say you're not saved because you look like one. He's stating that you believe you are saved because you look like one. Well, so am I, but for different reasons. I claim to be saved not because of how I look. I claim to be saved because of verse 5, because I place God as the Lord of my life. I, I accepted Christ as my Savior. Letter B, the authority of God places in, on our lives is not intended to terrorize, but rather to inspire. Verse 9, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, say they, of me, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such and one think this, that as such as we are in word by letters, we are absent. These people in the Corinthian church, they say, hey, the Apostle Paul seems like he's a tough guy, but in person he's small, he's weak. He, he is not a strong speaker. His voice is not bold and powerful. They would attack Paul's physical, and by the way, those who believe your Christian identity is found in the physical will always attack the physical of other people, always. I am a Christian because of how I look. Look at her. Look at her dress and how short it is. Look at her, her pants and, and the fact that she's even wearing them, right? Or look at this, look at that. They will always look to your physical and bring you down by looking at your physical because that's all they consider. And these people aren't even attacking Paul's manner of dress choices they're attacking Paul's physical stature. He can't even do anything about that. They're saying, look at the Apostle Paul. He's really not, you know, a big, powerful guy. You know, they're kind of referring to the fact that he seems to be short. His voice is, is more quiet, it seemed, and isn't very strong, overbearing. And they're attacking things about Paul Paul can't even fix. But to someone who claims physical is what matters, everything's fair game. How dare we? 
as Christians attack the physical of other Christians. Instead, let us encourage the spiritual of other Christians, focusing on that. The Apostle Paul says, I have authority. God's given it to me. But I'm not going to come back to terrorize these false accusers with my authority. That's not why it was given to me. Could I come and be bold in my, str- in my personality, be bold in my presence? I could, and I may have to, but that's not why I have it. Authority is not intended to terrorize. And if you are an authority figure to anyone, and you are a terror to them, you've got it wrong. Your authority was given to you to support them, to inspire them, to lift them up, to help with some of the chaos in their life, not to terrorize them into submission. Look, the truth is, authority figures are often terrifying just because they're authority figures, just the the role, just the title can be terrifying. Don't make it worse by the way you act towards them. And now let's go to letter B. I'm sorry, letter C, excuse me, and we're done. The more time we spend in God's presence, the more powerful our own presence. Verse 11, let such an one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. The Apostle Paul says, I want my physical presence to reflect the letters I gave the love, the compassion, the caring, the inspiration. I want when I'm with you to be giving you the same things that you received through the words that I gave. And the Apostle Paul realizes that if he wants to have a presence that impacts people positively, he needs to be in God's presence and be impacted by God first. Christian, you will impact people in the manner by which you were impacted If you were impacted negatively as a child, as a teen, as a young adult, the only way to fix that is to replace it with positive impact in Christ. Once you go to Christ and receive the positive impact, you can then pass that on to other people. If you do not replace the negative impact with the positive impact from God, all you'll continue giving is negative impact. You only give what you've got, and you only got what you were given by someone else. So if all you were given is negative, that's all you've got to give. So it's up to you. Will you take the negative that was given to you and give it to God and say, God, I forgive. I'm going to let it go. All this negative in my life, all this negative in my mind and my heart, all the things that were done to me, all the wrongs that were given to me, I do not want to pass those on because you can only give what you were given. And if that's what you were given and that's what you're holding on, that's all you've got to give. I've said it many times. Hurt people only hurt people. If you are hurt, you will hurt. If you receive hurt and you don't let it go through forgiveness, then all you've got inside of you to give is hurt. Take the negative. Take the, take the hurt. Take the pain. Give it to God and say, God, give me something different because this is not what I want to pass on. This is not the impact I want to make. My presence, I don't want to terrorize people with my presence. I want to inspire them. 
So God, I give it to you. I forgive. I forgive the people who've hurt me. I forgive the pain that was caused me. Now, God, fill me with peace. Fill me with joy. Fill me with love. That is what I want to pass on to others. And when I'm present with them, I want them to see that. How about it, Christian? You've been hurt. We all have. I don't care how old you are. You've been hurt. You're a teenager. You've been hurt. If that hurt is not addressed, that's all you've got to give to other people. Hurt. You have regrets. If you don't let those regrets go and give them to God, all you have to give to people is regrets. You've been terrorized by authority in your life. If you do not see Christ as a pure authority and replace the terror of man's authority with the love and compassion of God's authority, all you will give as an authority figure is terror. That's all you know, and that's all you'll give. Come to Christ. Spend time with him. Let him replace all of the negative the world has given you with positive, and then give that out to others. Let's pray.